Now, if you would please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our scripture lesson today is from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and of the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent in those days, told no one any of the things they had seen. The word of God for the people of God. God. All right, you may be seated. It was a absolutely grand worship service. It was at the end of a week-long spiritual retreat. They had a band and everything was absolutely superb. The song selection, everything. And I mean, for me, and for I know many other people in attendance, there was, this was what you'd call a mountaintop experience. Nobody had to tell us that the presence of God was there. There was just something mysterious about it where God was real and it was palpable and it was powerful. And then the preacher got up to preach. And it was like in a few sentences, he popped that balloon of enthusiasm. Now he delivered the sermon passionately and skillfully. And he stirred up some hearts, but he ended it saying that nothing of these stirring emotions, that none of the, anything that you've experienced this week means anything if you're not going to follow Jesus, if you're not going to live any differently. He says, that's the real test of our worship. It's not our feelings, but it's our discipleship. And to me, this conclusion felt like a, a real downer in no small part because I knew that what he was saying was true. This emotion, this emotional high was going to go away and then I'd be faced with the prospect of, oh, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me and that this isn't always easy and sometimes the emotion is not there. In just a couple of sentences, we were taken as a congregation in that that worship service, we were taken from the spiritual peak of the mountaintop and then thrust down into the valley. And you know what? That's often the way Christian worship is. And in our gospel lesson today, you could say they were having a mountaintop experience. In fact, it's this reading that we get that phrase from, mountaintop experience. Jesus takes some of his disciples up on a mountain, and then, well, it got weird. Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. His clothes become white as snow. There's a blinding light. Moses and Elijah appear. And there's a voice from heaven saying, this is my son, 
Listen to him. The last time Jesus appeared on a mountaintop was when he gave his Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives a lot of practical instruction for how we are to live our lives in the world as disciples. But the Jesus we see on this mountaintop is very different from what we get in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, we get something practical. It's about what we do. But on this mount, it's all about what God does. And what God does here on the Mount of Transfiguration is, is weird. Now I say that not to be flippant, but because I think I know you, and you and I are all sophisticated 21st century thinkers. We think in terms of scientific categories, what we can see, hear, taste, and touch. And so there's not a lot of imagination for a story like this. And I can almost feel you get a little bit jittery as the story was being read because this kind of material is, I think, a challenge for any modern person. But before we dismiss it as just a strange story, among many other strange stories in the Bible, I want to suggest that maybe our modern view of reality and all that we've learned in the 21st century, that our view of reality hasn't gotten bigger, but it's shrunk. In fact, we don't have perhaps adequate imaginations for thinking in the way that this story pushes us to think. I came across a study by Morton Kelsey, he's a sociologist of religion. He did a study of Roman Catholic laity on their mystical experiences. And Kelsey found out that on, on average, the average Roman Catholic layperson reported having at least one life-changing, transformative, mystical experience at some point in their life, at least one. And yet almost all of them, when further pressed, said, and I never told anyone about it. And Kelsey said to them, you know, when he pressed back, saying, well, why wouldn't you at least tell your priest? I mean, he's kind of in, in the mystical business. And they all had the same response. He would think I was crazy. And that's interesting. Because you see right there that there's this kind of policing that's going on in modern life. To make sure that reality stays down in the valley. To make sure that we stay firmly fixed only to the world of taste and touch and sense. We dismiss from the conversation anything that gets too strange. One example I saw of this recently, and I'm not saying anything about him as a politician. I'm, I would never talk about candidates from up here in the pulpit. That's just not my thing. But a while back, Vice President Mike Pence did an interview, and in it he said some things like, I talk to Jesus. I listen for what God is saying to me. And immediately... There was that policing going on. Immediately, there were commentators on cable news and there were commentators online saying, oh, he must be crazy. He must be mentally ill. Listen, he hears voices. That's the only explanation. There's simply no imagination for a story like the Transfiguration. But here on the Mount, on the Mount of Transfiguration, is something more. An absolutely superb astounding vision, and admittedly, this is a vision that if you came to me and told me about it, I would think you were crazy. We have this sense in which the veil between heaven and earth is pulled back for just a moment, and we see, and there's a voice, 
And it's not something at all that we can fit into our past experience. It's not something we can fit into modern imagination. The writer Frederick Buechner says that we are all living our lives on the basis of some definition of reality, of what is probable, of, of what is possible. And what if, Buechner asks, what if sometimes the veil between the world that we think we know and the world that we have yet to know, what if that veil gets pulled back for just a moment and we see and we get a glimpse of something more? On the way to the cross, here in Luke chapter 9, Jesus withdraws from the journey and he goes up a mountaintop with a couple of his disciples And there, before his astonished disciples, Jesus changes form. He shines like the sun. Moses, the great giver of the law, and Elijah, the most famous of all the prophets, they appear and they're walking, they're alive, they're raised from the dead, and they're walking and they're talking with him. And there's a great cloud that comes down and overshadows them, and then there's this voice from heaven saying, this is my son, listen to him. You can't explain something like this. It's only a glimpse. But somehow, it's enough of a glimpse for these disciples to go on. Because they come down from the mountain. And it's like from here on out, notice they they never mention this episode again. They never come down from the mountain and say to the other disciples, as far as we know, boy, we just had a weird experience up on the mountain. It's just like, whatever it is that, they got up there, it was enough because Jesus goes on from here and he goes to his cross and those disciples faithfully go on and eventually they face their own crosses. And I think that this kind of experience, this transformative mountaintop experience, that this may be one of the reasons you're here in church this morning. Maybe even if you don't know it, that you're hoping, hoping to get some kind of experience, hoping for an epiphany, hoping that just maybe in some small way that veil will be parted to give you just a glimpse, to help keep you going, to help you face that own cross that you must bear, whatever that is. And this does happen, I know. I've experienced it. I remember one Sunday after service in a previous church, this man came, comes up to me and he says, oh, hey, great service. And I said, well, well, thank you. Tell, tell me what was good about it. Now, now I know better than to ask what was good about it because I usually get some rendition of, oh, you caught me. I actually wasn't paying attention. And, but good job anyway. But no, he didn't. He had no explanation for what made it good. He just said, I just want you to know that if I die right now, that's okay. For the first time, I know I'm okay. I just want you to know that. And then he left. I come to find out later that he had a number of scary, troubling medical issues, and for the first time, it was like he got a glimpse of something. And it was only a glimpse. But whatever it was, it was enough. There are these moments in our Christian life, great moments of emotion in our life with God when we are blessed with a special feeling that God is near and that God is real and that our hearts maybe just are on fire for God. 
And often, Christians try to generate this feeling artificially, especially once they've already experienced it at least once. These are people that are on worship committees and and they'll think, gosh, we want people to come down to the altar. We want people to cry. How do we do this? Oh, I know. Maybe 20 stanzas of awesome God. That'll get every, anyone to come down to the altar. You know? so, so they try to plan things accordingly. But in my experience, trying to manufacture God's presence never turns out very well. Because the fact is, only God can take you to the mountaintop. And on the mountaintop moment with Jesus, Peter Peter makes one of the greatest understatements of all time. He says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. And then he impulsively wants to build three booths, one for the Lord, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He's saying, hey, let's fix this vision up here permanently. Let's, let's build a building. Let's set up an endowment. Let's stabilize this and, and keep it up here forever so that we can just go back and, and visit this anytime we want to, but nope. It's just a glimpse. And I think we can all, though, sympathize with Peter for wanting to hold on to such a grand mountaintop experience. Because there are those moments, and I hope perhaps you have some of them on a Sunday morning, or perhaps it was in a a walk to Emmaus, or on a retreat, or at Lakeview, or maybe just a, a time of spontaneous prayer when you were all by yourself. Whatever it was, There was a time for you, more than likely, when you felt blessed with a special feeling of God's near presence. And you wished, maybe, and and you prayed that, that this high moment of spiritual bliss would last forever. But we all know it doesn't. It doesn't last forever because, well, not only is it hard to sustain such emotion over the long haul, it's also because that's just not how Jesus works. Jesus doesn't allow his disciples to stay on the mountaintop, but he leads them back down into the valley. Remember, he is on a mission. He's on the move. He is going to the cross. He is there to make all things new, and he calls us to be agents in that mission. He calls us to our own cross. And Jesus has this way of of taking us to the mountaintop, of filling us with joy, but then Jesus also has this way of leading us toward the cross and having a deep, profound Spiritual feeling is great, but, but we have to come down sometime. And the real test of our faithfulness and the real test of our worship is not in our feelings, but it's in what we do afterwards. It's in how we live. I have a friend of mine who's a, a Methodist historian, uh, kind of as a hobby, and he got real excited. He got to take a trip to Oxford and do some research there in their library, and he found a never-before-published exchange of letters between John Wesley, the founder of United Methodism, and a Mrs. March. And he said, Andy, you gotta check this out. It's a letter from Mrs. March, you need to read this. And, and I know it sounds like a Playboy pin-up girl, but that really is her name, Mrs. March. And I said, oh, thank you, Randy, great. So, so I got to read this, and Mrs. March writes to John Wesley. She says, oh, Father Reverend Wesley, when I heard you preach in London, The light of God burned brightly within my breast and I gave my life to Christ and God felt real and near. But in the intervening months, my faith has, that fire has has gone down and is dying and and please, Father Wesley, give, give me some word by which my faith might be renewed. And John Wesley writes her back. 
Madam, when I met you in London, you impressed me as one of those gentle women for whom I have such contempt. And I can tell that you are one of those people that really needs to take a lot more responsibility with your spiritual condition. You say that you are arising every morning at 7 a.m. for Bible study. Well, clearly somebody in your superficial condition needs to be arising at 6 a.m. for Bible study. You say that you are visiting in the jail two days a week. Well, obviously somebody like you needs to be visiting in the jail three days a week. No sympathy for this poor woman's feelings. In a sense, he's saying, don't come whining to me about how you don't have this or that feeling. That's not true religion. True religion is, is how you live your life. It's the inculcation of habits. Following Jesus through all the stuff of life, that's hard. And sometimes the emotion is just not there. Fact is, you can't rely on emotion to sustain and grow your relationship with God, which is, I think, why the church teaches and does so many things out of habit. We don't have this building and just say, hey, come here whenever you want to. We say, this is the time we're getting together. We're doing it regularly every week. And we set that up because we know that having a faith family is important and that often God speaks to us through a member of our faith family. And we have all kinds of traditions that we observe often without really thinking about them. For instance, you all stood for the reading of the scripture. There was one Sunday I didn't make y'all stand and I was told afterwards, hey, we, we stand here for God's word. And that's something. In such a practice, you are affirming and inculcating in yourself the idea that, hey, this is important. This is something. This should be honored. And then you also have prayers that often are criticized for being meaningless because they're just memorized and repeated. Things like the Lord's Prayer. And my response to the idea that these would, could ever be meaningless is that the Christian life is hard. Sustaining it is hard. And we only do difficult things out of habit. It's possible that you could learn on your own to pray for forgiveness of sins for yourself. But to be able to pray something like, forgive my trespasses, forgive my sins in accordance with the way I forgive others who trespass against me, that's a much deeper issue. Fact is, there are so many prayers, there are so many parts of the liturgy that invite us to say things to God that we might never get to say were it not for the church teaching us to say them. We also have the Apostles' Creed saying this is what we believe. And we could go on and on with the different elements of worship, but I'll suffice it to say worship is really better experienced than explained. And I know that the faithfulness of our Sunday worship, going forward from here, the faithfulness of our Sunday worship will not be measured by what you felt or what you did during the service but by what you did on Monday morning and the work you did in the world and how you're living your life. There's an old Pentecostal saying that it ain't how high folks jump in church that makes them Christians. It's what they do when they hits the floor. It's when the rubber meets the road, in other words, that it counts. And clearly Jesus promised that it wasn't always going to be easy. There wasn't always going to be this grand theophany and vision and swelling of emotion. 
He promises instead that there will be a cross that fits your back also. And that nothing we do here in worship protects us from bearing the cross. Yet often, I think if we are awake, you'll notice that in today's gospel story, the disciples are weighed down with sleep, but yet they're awake. And I think that if you're awake and paying attention by the grace of God and only by the grace of God, we get to witness something. We might just get a glimpse of glory. And that glimpse can give you strength to endure, to live as a disciple once you go out past these doors. One of my first, actually the second church I ever served in little uh, Montgomery County, North Carolina, there was a woman there who had a child with very special needs, uh, required constant care, constant attention. And the doctors said that it was impossible that this child would live past its third birthday. And they brought this, his name was Tommy, they brought Tommy home from the hospital and four months later, this woman's husband walked out on her. He said, I just can't handle this. And the church lived in awe of this mother and how well she handled it. Year after year, she loved that child and she raised that child and she was able to see in him a gift and not a burden. And he lived to be 15 years old, which for I'm told for someone with his condition is essentially unheard of. And when we had Tommy's funeral, sometime afterwards I was talking to the mother and I said something like, you are the strongest person I have ever met. You are the most resilient, you are just amazing. And she said, you know, I didn't do it alone. And I thought, really? I heard the story about your husband. Tell me more. She said, well, I had my faith family But it really all changed when Tommy was seven years old. He had finally developed to the point where he could throw temper tantrums. But in his case, his temper tantrums tended to last for three, four, or five hours. And it was an especially rough day. He was just constantly, constantly screaming one tantrum after another. And finally, she just was about to snap and she picked him up and she placed Tommy in front of the window and said, Tommy, you stay here and you look out that window and you wait for the garbage man to come. And don't you move. And she went back into the kitchen and stood behind the sink and tried to compose herself. And she says, I thought to myself, I can't do this. I really can't do this. This is where I break. Then she says she looked and suddenly... Tommy was quiet. He was smiling. He was staring out the window in complete awe of the wonder of the garbage man coming and picking up the garbage. And a beam of sunshine was shining through the window and it was illuminating his face and the hair around his head in such a way that and he was smiling and, and he looked like an angel. And I was given a gift in that moment that I was able to see my son the same way God sees him. And it was only a glimpse, but it was enough. It kept me going. I'm glad you all are here this morning. And it is my hope that by the grace of God, you all at some point in your lives, if you haven't already, 
that you get a glimpse. Maybe you're just here out of habit. Maybe one day when you're just going through the motions, suddenly things get transfigured and weird. And you end up getting more out of church than you brought here, which is something that rarely ever happens, by the way. And perhaps by the grace of God, you'll just be singing a hymn or maybe you'll be handed a piece of bread and suddenly Christ is near you and with you and in you. And that as you leave, although that emotion will fade, it'll be enough. Enough for you to keep going. Enough for you to live as the kind of Christian that God has called you to be. Amen. Would you stand for our final?